1: Hello and welcome to the Strong By Design podcast. I'm your host today, Coach Tanya, and I'm joined by a very special guest today. I am really honored to have on the show with me, Dr. Paul Saladino. And if you're not familiar with him, he is the author of The Carnivore Code. If you haven't picked up this book, you're going to want to do that, but I'm going to let him tell you more about that. So um, yeah, you're not here to listen to me. So let me introduce Dr. Paul Saladino. Welcome to our show and thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: (laughs) So, Paul, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, I've read your bio and um, I'm very impressed with your history and, you know, where you're at now, but why don't you give our listeners a brief intro to who you are and, you know, why you're here?
2: (laughs) So, I think that the best answer that I've come up with to this question, because I get asked this a lot, right? I do a lot of podcasts these days. Right. And the other day, I answered this question kind of off the cuff and I was like, oh, yeah, that's a really good answer. I'm basically someone that loves to be in the wilderness, loves to climb mountains, loves to surf, um, loves to be in the water, who accidentally went to medical school twice and (laughs) is really interested in what prevents humans from doing all the cool things that we all like to do. Mm. Whether it's lifting weights in the gym or climbing mountains or playing with our kids on the playground, I'm really interested in understanding why humans lose vitality? Why do we get sick? Why do we get diabetes? Why do we get cancer? Why do we get autoimmune disease? Because I've been so fortunate to experience so many amazing things in my life in the wilderness and the things that I like to do. And I thought, well, I, I, in my free time, I think that I would like to understand how to, how to fix that for other people too. So I, I kind of went to medical school twice. I was a physician assistant. So I went to PA school first and I worked in cardiology for four years. Pretty quickly realized that the mainstream Western medical paradigm was not for me. It was mm. not going to work. It was, was symptom-focused and pharmaceutical-based. And I couldn't practice that way. I didn't want to just learn algorithms for prescribing medications. Right. I just was fascinated by these questions of what the heck is causing the disease in the first place. That just held me enraptured. It just absolutely fascinates me to this day. And then I knew that pretty quickly, uh, working as a physician assistant in cardiology, I was going to go back to medical school because this wasn't going to be the end game. I hadn't planned that originally. And then I went back to medical school at the University of Arizona and then medical uh, residency at the University of Washington. And here I am today. But along the way, I was sort of iterating around diet for my own medical issues, which were asthma and eczema, predominantly the latter, mostly eczema that was problematic for me, but I had some pretty bad eczema. Mm. And I knew that there was an autoimmune driver for this, that something was triggering my immune system. So Even though I'd been through a number of dietary iterations at that point, I wasn't content just to say, oh, what I'm eating now, which for the majority of the last 15 years has been kind of an organic paleo diet before I went into the carnivore sphere, what I'm eating now as an organic paleo diet isn't working for me because clearly something about this diet is triggering my eczema and I didn't want to have smoldering inflammation, smoldering autoimmunity, smoldering immunologic activation in my body, which is really inflammation. So, yeah, so I kept iterating around it. Eventually came across the notion of a carnivore diet of excluding all or most plants and thought that's crazy. That's just ludicrous. Plants are valuable for humans. But Mm -hmm. then I thought about it a little more and I decided to give it a try and lo and behold, my eczema went away within a few weeks. I felt better psychologically. I didn't even think that I had depression or anxiety or anger issues and I felt like a better human. And it was just a fascinating kind of experience. And I thought, I need to do more research on this. We've been told that red meat is bad for us. And here I am eating a diet that's entirely composed of red meat and organs like liver and heart and this nose to tail concept, which we can talk about. Yeah. And I feel really good. And this eczema that I've had for so long has gone away. How is it possible the plants could be causing my immune problems? Is it possible that plants are causing other people's immune problems And is it possible that we're being told the completely wrong thing about red meat today, which I think we are? And that just was such a fascinating kind of rabbit hole for me to kind of peer down Mm -hmm. that I just dove down it head first. And it's been a wild ride ever since. And you can hear, hopefully, in the background, we've got a good thunderstorm going on. Yeah,
1: I can. (laughs) And we're probably going to be getting one here too. So you might be hearing it on this end too. Um, Okay, so... First of all, I do want to comment on, um, with past guests. It sounds like a lot of, a lot, I shouldn't say a lot, but there's a fair number of guests I've had on the show that are definitely, they have made their, you know, kind of made their name known or made a place for themselves in terms of nutrition as, I'll use it as, as a medicine or a therapy, which typically they started with, as you say, having their own health issues and, you know, um the generation or the era that I grew up in, we were taught a certain thing and a certain way about nutrition. And it just seems like all of a sudden, like, could it really all be that wrong? Um, because, I mean, I grew up in a family. My mom was a fantastic cook. We, um, my, my dad was from a farm. So I really didn't eat store-bought meat and a lot of store-bought vegetables until I was kind of in university and on my own because... Everything kind of was, I used to call it from gate to plate. You know, it came right from the land and onto my plate. But my mother was three square meals, you know, lots of veggies, watching the meats and the fat, but, you know, healthy lean cuts. Um, So how is it that what we've, what a lot of us today in our 40s, you know, 30s to 50s, how could it be so wrong? I mean, is it that that was wrong or is it the processing or what we're doing, is there something in that from the organic uh, starting point of where the food grows to how it gets to our plate, that's the issue.
2: There's a lot wrapped up in that question. So <laughs> the, the mainstream narrative for the last 70 years, I mean, neither you or I have been alive for 70 years, but basically since the 1960s, there was a series of epidemiology studies done by Ansel Keys and others, and the formation of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, and sort of the the dietary guidelines formed by the American Heart Association in connection with the U.S. government, but really the narrative for the last 70 plus years in the United States, 60 to 70 years, has been that red meat is bad for you. And I even heard it in your statement. You said healthy, lean meat. Right. And so we've been told that saturated fat is bad for us. And where does saturated fat come from? Well, animal meat has some saturated fats. Some plants have saturated fats too. They're shorter chain saturated fats as opposed to the longer chain Mm -hmm. saturated fats, palmitic acid and stearic acid found in animal meat. But we've sort of been told this blanket statement that saturated fat is bad for us. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people that hear that statement don't know why that is or what it's based on. But it's certainly not based on interventional science. It's not based on studies done in the lab with humans where they take a set of humans and they give some of them saturated fat from animals that's not processed and another group less of it. It's done on what's called, it's based on epidemiology. It's based on observational studies. The problem with observational studies is they're trying to draw a correlation. But as we all know, it's almost, you know, passe today to say correlation is not causation. And in the scientific medical realm, we know we can't draw causative inference from correlational data. And yet that's what the media really starts to lead us down a misleading path in their reporting with. In the media, we'll see headlines. Red meat is associated with more heart disease, associated Mm -hmm. with earlier death, associated with more mortality, or correlated. And the media never does its due diligence and says, hey guys, wait a minute. These are observational studies. We're not saying causes, but how often are those two conflated? Very frequently. Uh It's almost a truism in 2020 to walk down the street and hear people say, I know red meat causes cancer. I know red meat causes heart attacks because I've been told that by the media and how could all of these media outlets and all these scientists be wrong? Well in fact that statement is completely false. It's an utter untruth. It's based on a very tragic conflation of the word associate or correlates mm. with causes. Right. And those are a mile those are miles and miles apart intellectually. They're very different. There are many things that are correlated in, a, in our observations that are, have no causal relationship at all. Murders and ice cream consumption, because they're both in the summer. You know, there's there's a really hilarious website, Spurious Correlations, that shows all these right. <laughs> correlations between, yeah. you know, the divorce rate in Maine and the per capita margarine consumption. And so the more that people consume margarine, more people get divorced in Maine. Does that mean consuming margarine is causing people to get divorced? Probably not. I mean, it's just hilarious. You know, deaths by getting tangled in the bedsheets and per capita cheese consumption. It's unless people are eating cheese in the bed, you know, these have, these have no, these have no causal relationship. And so we've been told the wrong thing. We've been, we've been sold a bill of goods. We've been led astray based upon very misleading epidemiology that is probably a lot of people are very well-meaning and well-intentioned, but it's not good science. Mm. It's very hard to undo cultural narratives it's very hard to undo propaganda once it's gone deep into our psyche. Right. And it's very hard for all of us to take a step back and say, wait a minute, is it possible, like you're kind of gra- grasping or grappling with now, is it possible that so many of the things I was told as a kid are just wrong? And that's what's so fascinating to me about this animal-based movement of dieting, of eating, I don't really like to call it a diet, just an animal-based lifestyle, right. is that it challenges basically everything we've been told for the last 60 years the notion that humans need fiber or that fiber from plants is somehow beneficial for us, the notion that red meat is is bad for us or good for us, the notion that LDL cholesterol causes heart attacks, the notion that butter or fat or saturated fat is bad for humans, the notion that plants could actually be harmful for us. I mean, there's so many things. And then, and then you know, environmental and ethical notions, which we can talk about as well, which are, how do we source our meat? Is it sustainable? Is it is it scalable? And it challenges a lot of the the mainstream thinking, which is wrong, in 2020 about the impact of ruminant animals on the environment. And so mm. it just shakes everything we know to its core. And it's exciting for some people who are open-minded, and for others, for other people or for many of us, it's like, wow, this challenges things that I thought I knew. It's scary to have your foundation shaken, but now there are thousands of people, tens of thousands of people who are finding significant improvements in autoimmune issues inflammatory issues, skin issues, psychiatric issues, mood issues, libido, body composition, the list goes on and on. Conditions they had been told by their doctor were incurable when they eliminate plants and start doing the opposite of what they've been told for the last 70 years, which is including more red meat and organs from well-raised animals in their diet. We're seeing incredible improvements. I get emails every single day at Heart and Soil. So I started this company that makes these desiccated organ supplements. Mm-hmm. We can talk about that. Yes, And I get emails from people every single day telling me that condition XYZ, whether it's eczema, psoriasis, depression, bipolar, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, Hashimoto's for the thyroid, Sjogren's, scleroderma, the list goes on and on and on. It's amazing. Uh, you know, they say, I, I thought I was gonna have to take biologic medications my whole life ankylosing spondylitis, spondyloarthropathies, autoimmune arthritis, it gets better when they make these dietary shifts towards something that we are told today will kill us. And so it's a very exciting place to be to challenge those notions and to say, wait a minute, does this make any sense? Does it make any sense at all to think this way? And that's why I started the book with kind of the evolutionary discussion because I think when we take a step back and we think about where we've come from as humans, Mm -hmm. the absurdity of today's narrative and nutrition becomes more clear. But if we just think about it in terms of a landscape and we don't have a historical perspective, it's easy to be misled. When we realize that we've come from people from hominid evolution and our ancestors have been eating meat and organs as the center of their diet, it all starts to make a whole lot more sense.
0: Our team would like to thank you so much for listening to the Strong by Design podcast. And if you're enjoying today's show, please share this episode with at least one friend or family member who will benefit from this message. And please subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Go to strongbydesignpodcast.com. That's strongbydesignpodcast.com. Let's get back to the show.
1: In your opinion, do you think, um, and this could be kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg, I don't know, but do you think we are in living in a in a time where we're actually where we're either starting to understand nutrition better, learn more about nutrition and food, or we're actually learning more about and understanding our, you know, the human body better?
2: Oh, it's both. I yeah. mean, when was DNA discovered? When was the double helix of <laughs> DNA discovered? A hundred years ago, nineteen thirties, maybe Watson and Crick, I gotta get that exact date. But a hundred years ago, we didn't even know what DNA was or that it was double helix. So in the last 100 years, we've learned many things about nutrition and different nutrients. And we're just now beginning to understand nutrients in both plants and animal foods. So we're learning more. We're learning more about human biology. I mean, when was the Krebs cycle figured out? Mm. You know, when was the electron transport chain understood? It's all happened within the last 100 or so years, the X-ray crystallography of the proteins in the electron transport chain. So we're learning a massive amount and starting to put the pieces together. But I do think we're also beginning to understand more about evolution and where we've come from and more anthropology and mm-hmm. everything's advancing. I mean, it's interesting to me. I think two to 300 years ago, people just did, they did what was easy. They did what was natural, which was to eat animal foods and animal fats. Yeah. And and it wasn't even a question. We just did it normally. I mean, a, a couple of thousand years ago, if you were still in a hunter-gatherer tribe, you know, you just hunted animals and, and used plants as survival food. So we're, we're sort of, we, we knew how to do it. And then we forgot about it when we started cultivating seeds and becoming farmers and making more and more processed foods, processed sugars or processed oils, vegetable oils, with the inclusion of cottonseed oil or Crisco vegetable oil in 1911. So we sort of knew it, we forgot it. And now we're having to rediscover or remember mm. things that we used to know as the science starts to tell us the story once again. It's, it's, a, it's a point of remembering and reawakening but in order to you know that that implies that at some point we sort of fell asleep, which I think we did. It's okay. clear. I mean, we're a very unhealthy population now. It's very clear that we went off the rails.
1: Right, right. Um, now in chapter two, I've got my little I got my little markers here. Um, <laughs> I'm just I'm I'm not going to read the whole thing out, but I, I do want you to talk a little bit more about this because um, I found this to be like a really it's it's early on in the book and it's a big statement, and I think a lot of people are you know, in their own minds, kind of wondering this as well, because you just said we're an unhealthy population. I mean, obesity rates tend, are, you know, rise. Um, mental health oh, uh, skyrocketing. is becoming a, 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 a huge, huge issue. And skyrocketing. You say, yeah, yeah. And you say that um, your point with this book is not to say that our societal progression away from our previous days as hunter-gatherers has been all bad, but that while there have been some benefits gained along the journey, there's been many negative things like rampant chronic disease, and other and other things and that current estimates indicate 80% of the western population has some form of metabolic disease prediabetes and insulin resistance talk about that because i don't know how many people are really aware of that statistic um, but i'm am certain that even those that really aren't you know um, <sighs> immersed in the science or you know but I, th- I think really at the end of the day most of us want to be healthy and well and we're, we're doing the best with what we know but to read something like that it might make somebody sit back and go okay well why is this because we live in we live in a time where like science technology like the, the resources and things that we have available to us things should be getting better so then why aren't they
2: Great question. That's, that's, to me, the most interesting question we can ask. And it's not even really debatable. This is just fact. You can look at our lifespan extending, but we're living longer, weaker, more decrepit lives. We're not leading better lives. So people might say, well, we live longer. Well, that's debatable as well. And we can get into hunter-gatherer tribes and this concept of squaring of the morbidity curve and the fact that if you look at indigenous hunter-gatherers, If they escape infant mortality or childhood mortality, they live just the same amount of time as us and they're much more vital longer into their life and they don't have chronic disease. But the statistic that you mentioned there that 88% of our population has at least some indicator of metabolic dishealth or unhealth is just a striking statistic. That is quoted from a paper that's referenced in the book and it has to do with one of the five criteria for metabolic syndrome, which are HDL cholesterol, triglycerides, blood pressure, waist circumference, hip-to-waist circumference, abdominal obesity, these type of things as indicators of overall metabolic unhealth. Now, if you even take a step back from that statistic, you mentioned that rates of chronic disease or psychiatric illness are rising. And I said, they're skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. And there's a real story to be told here. If you look at the rates of diabetes in this country, just since the 1960s, they've gone from 10 to 12% to, I believe, 30 to 40%. Uh, in terms of actual diagnoses, you need to actually, I got to confirm those figures, but um, they're pretty striking right now. They've gone up significantly just within the last 20 plus years, even the last 30 years. So it's pretty, it's pretty scary stuff. It really is. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at the rates of obesity and overweight, those are two different BMI categories, right? So obesity is anything above you know, 29 on the BMI technically, or slightly overweight. And overweight is even, you know, well, overweight is like, you know, the 29, 30 range in the BMI. And then you get above 35, you get obese. And so if you combine obesity and overweight, you've got 70%, 70% of the US population that is obese and overweight. And if that is not enough to get people thinking (laughs) then I don't know what is because that is a statistic that is not able to be easily ignored Mm -hmm. in any way, shape, or form. You have 70%, 70% of your population that is obese and overweight with rates of diabetes that are skyrocketing, with rates of chronic disease that are absolutely skyrocketing. Something has gone wildly wrong. If people believe that we are living better lives today, I have a sobering reality to share with them. Mm -hmm. in 2020, the rate of chronic disease in our population is 60%. And that's according to CDC statistics, 60%. And so you could look at that number and you think, okay, there is something that we need to figure out. What is going on here? So 42% are obese. And then if you add overweight, it goes up to 70%. And I misquoted on diabetes. So in 1960, the rate was 0.9%. And today, at least in terms of diagnosed diabetes, it's 8.3%. So I was a little bit off, but you get the trend. It's skyrocketing since the 1960s. That doesn't include people with pre-diabetes or metabolic dysfunction, which is often synonymous with insulin resistance. So then you start asking, what the heck happened to us? What the heck happened to us? And that's kind of the story I'm telling in the book. I think that there's a lot of interesting things to look at in terms of what has happened But remember at the beginning of this podcast, I said, what happened in the 1960s as well? The new dietary guidelines. Mm -hmm. And we were told to stop eating red meat and we were told to stop eating animal fat. That happened at the same time. So, and if people don't believe that humans and Westerners are listening to health advice, there's statistics that say we actually are. More people are doing healthy eating. More people are listening to health advice now. The rates of smoking have declined. The rates of alcohol consumption have declined. And we're actually exercising more. So we're not more sick because we're fatter or we are fatter, but we're not more sick because we're not exercising. Mm-hmm. We're not more sick because we have bad habits like tobacco or alcohol. And then you start to get to this really fascinating story. Like what the heck is going on? It's probably our diet. Our diet has changed. And people would say, aha, see it's a diet. It's sugars. And partially it's sugars, but I think it's also vegetable oils and highly processed vegetable oils, but it's not meat. We're not eating more meat. We're actually eating less meat, less, less red meat. We listen to guidelines so if you look at what kind of meats we're eating, we're eating more chicken and less beef. So anyone, if anyone claims that red meat is behind this, it doesn't, even, it doesn't even line up. There's not even a correlation there. We talked about correlation and causation right. at the beginning, mm-hmm. but you can't even correlate red meat consumption. They're inversely correlated, mm-hmm. and you can't correlate a lot of other things. So I can pull up some graphics if you want to see a screen share. There's some interesting graphics in terms of what humans are doing and, and, and how their dietary patterns okay. are changing. But, um, but it, does, it is a fascinating question and, and the rates of disease are skyrocketing and we really can't ignore this. And we should not be led astray to believe that we are leading better lives because we are leading longer lives of decrepitude.
0: It is now more important than ever to take care of your health and support your immune system. Discover the five best ways to boost your immune system in a free 23-page report. Go to strongbydesignimmune.com and download the report today.
2: We are leading longer, sicker lives. We able to keep uh, we're able to keep our elderly and sick people a- alive longer, but we're pretty darn decrepit. If you look at a 70 year old In the Hadza hunter-gatherer tribe, they are going to run circles around a 70-year-old in the U.S. And that is just, that's, that's the paradigm that I want to advance. That's really the epitome of the notion here is what's different about what they're doing and what we're doing and what happened in the 1960s. And I think a lot of it had to do with that information that we got, the recommendations we got. The dietary guidelines were avoid cholesterol, avoid saturated fat, avoid animal foods. Mm -hmm. And what do you do when you do that? You start eating more grains and you start eating more processed vegetable oils. And our health went into the toilet. And there's no one can deny that. And there's so many interesting correlations here that we start to piece it together. And then once you have a correlation, the next part is you say, okay, let's do some experiments and start to figure this out. You design experiments to test your hypothesis. So one hypothesis might be, hey, animal foods are really good for us and not eating enough animal foods is causing us to get sick. And the other, the corollary hypothesis is is vegetable oil is really bad for us and we can design studies around that and they have been done and they're really interesting and we can talk about them, but we've gone way, we've gone way outside of that, but we are a very, very sick population.
1: So do you think, do you think we can make the shift? I mean, do you think it's possible to make this shift in our health as a culture, as a population, as a country? Um, Do you think, or do you think that the belief and what we've been taught to believe and what we've been told is just so ingrained that it's almost like um, uh, a fear-based thing? You know, like people, oh, eating red meat, eating fat. Well, some people, when you, when you talk to them about that, they become very scared they, they, they're not, you know, they're very unsure. So how do we make the shift or how do you convince people that this is a better way to go? Or I trust that this is a better way for us to be living. Somebody that doesn't read statistics.
2: (laughs) Fear is very powerful. Fear is very powerful. Um, I was just, there was a, I don't know if you're a fan of, of uh, Dune, but the movie Dune is coming out and there's a, there's a, line in the trailer fear is the mind killer mm. and look at the current coronavirus epidemic pandemic right if this is not fear-based messaging i don't know what is people are terrified and it's very hard to separate fact from fiction and so i believe it happens one person at a time i'm not i'm not dead set on convincing a, a, you know 300 million people overnight But I do think it happens from a grassroots effort. I think it happens from the bottom up, not the top down. Right. I may be pessimistic, but I don't think the guidelines are going to change. I think there's too much lobby. There's too much money supporting processed food. There's too much money supporting nutrient-poor, plant-based processed food. And there's too much money in corn and soy lobbies for the government to really listen to the notion that animal foods are good for humans. And imagine what would happen. Imagine what sort of dietary revolt What happened if the U.S. government said, "Mm, we were wrong? But there are studies published, the new, like the Journal of the American College of Cardiology recently came up with two landmark papers in this year, June and July of 2020. This is the preeminent Journal of Cardiology in Western Medicine saying, you know, it's an opinion piece from multiple cardiologists saying, we don't understand why saturated fat has been vilified all these years. There's really not good evidence that saturated fat is bad for humans. But did that get any media coverage? I didn't see it on a single news outlet because they were too worried scaring us about other things. And so I think you're right. I think we've been scared into thinking that red meat is bad for us, and it's just going to happen person by person and things like this podcast that share the message and say, hey, think about it from an evolutionary perspective. The first chapter of my book is about where we've come from. And if you think about where we've come from, it makes a lot more sense and you can be a lot less scared. The first thing to realize is that there are tons of indigenous cultures still living. They're very small in numbers, but there are many still out there, the Hadza, the Yukung, the San the Yanomono, the Kawi-Meno in, the, in uh, Amazon, who eat a lot of animal meat and organs. <laughs> the Catavans, they don't shun any of these. They hunt animals and they eat animals. They're not eating Beyond Burgers and veg- vegetable slop. They're not eating Soylent. And they don't have any significant evidence of vascular disease at all. You know, they really don't have diabetes. They don't have any of these problems. So there are living examples of people eating these foods and not eating a whole lot of plant foods and certainly not eating salads that, that are doing just fine. That are thriving actually and putting us to shame. If you look at the size of the human brain, the story is really written there as well. The size of our brain as an Australopithecine, Australopithecus, you know, a four million year old hominid ancestor, was 400 to 500 cc's. And then in the intervening, you know, from the last over the last two million years, it went from 500 cc's to 100 to 1,500 cc's. So it tripled in size. Well, you have to remember that our primate ancestors had the brains that were essentially the same size for 60 to 90 million years. So eating lots of plants as a primate just gets you the brain that's the exact same size. So what happened 2 million years ago? We started hunting. And there's really undeniable evidence for this. There's evidence of stone tools, spy facial tools, cut marks on bones, injuries to animals, mass animal graves. Humans became good hunters 2 million years ago. And our brains tripled in size, tripled in size. This is unheard of in any species we've ever seen on the planet in the intervening two million years. Now, that requires a lot more energy. Brains are very energy intensive. And so, what was happening at the same time, our guts were shrinking. The large bowel, our colon, was shrinking. So, what allowed our colon to shrink and our brain to grow? Much more nutrient rich and nutrient dense food found in animal meat and organs. We became hunters.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Strong by Design podcast. To help our show reach more listeners just like you, please let us know how we've changed your life by leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Go to strongbydesignpodcast.com. That's strongbydesignpodcast.com. Let's get back to the show. Hunting made
2: us human. Hunting made us human. We are the humans we are today because we have consumed red meat and organs preferentially for the last 2 million years. It's really an unarguable fact mm-hmm. that is corroborated by all sorts of evidence, stable isotopes from teeth and bones. And we have hunted animals at the exclusion of other foods as a majority of our diet for the last 2 million years. Mm-hmm eating plants didn't make us big-brained. Eating animals made us big-brained. And then you see that reflected in nutrients as well. There are many nutrients found in red meat and organs, like liver and heart, that are not found in plants. There are things like creatine, choline, carnosine, carnitine, ansurine, taurine, B12, the full spectrum of K2-metaquinones, the list goes on and on. But the reverse is not true. There are no nutrients in plants that are not found in animal foods. You can get every single thing you need to be an optimal human by eating entirely animals. Now, I'm not saying that people need to eat entirely animals. My goal is not to convince everyone to give up eating plants. My goal with the book and with the messaging and what we do at Heart and Soil is really threefold. To help people understand, first and foremost, kind of like we've been talking about, that red meat and organs are the centerpiece of the human diet. They've been that way for millions of years, and they're integral to optimal human health. To ignore them is to ignore our ancestry, and it To to ignore them really forsakes a lot of unique nutrients that you cannot get anywhere else, and they've been incorrectly vilified for the last 70 years based on bad studies that are observational. Number two, that plants exist on a toxicity spectrum, and we can get into this if you want. That plants are rooted in the ground; they have toxins. They don't want to get eaten, and they're going to defend themselves somehow. And for a lot of people who are struggling, elimination of the most toxic plants or all the plants can be a huge step in the right direction if they include animal organs and meat, eat nose to tail. In their diet. The last piece of the equation is that processed vegetable oils, which came into our diet with uh, the vilification of animal foods are really the bane of our existence. And I think the major driver of chronic metabolic disease in this country. But so in the book, you'll see I've included this spectrum of plant toxicity. And it's not so much about getting people to just eat animal meat all day. It's helping them understand some plants are more toxic, less toxic, and kind of branch from there and think and eat more like our ancestors did. I don't think our ancestors ate no plants. I don't think they prioritized plants. I think they used plants as fallback foods, as survival foods, and they understood which parts of plants and which plants were more and less toxic. And they, used, when they had to eat toxic parts of plants, they did a lot of things like fermentation to detoxify them. So I just dropped a lot on you. I'll let you take it from no, there.
1: No, that's you went right into what I was going to go to next, and that was um, on page 34, a case of mistaken identity. And I, I love how you lead into this where you say, you know, kale doesn't love you back. Now, I do. I love kale. I just I just enjoy it. I enjoy it with, with my other stuff. Um, kale doesn't love you. Broccoli's just not that into you. Spinach isn't a real friend. And you talk about like these bad relationships. And I do want you to talk more about that because I, I do, um, I feel like there is, I, I feel like the whole, you know, I feel like there's a growing greater acceptance for, um, in terms of like things like keto and you know including more meats and organ meats into the human diet. I think there's certainly I'm seeing a greater interest, and people are starting to ask questions. And to me, that's always a good thing. If people are asking questions, you know, to understand more, there's a you know there's 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 it's learning, it's learning, and that can only help. Um, but there's you know there's still there's this huge huge um, foundation in, you know, vegetables. Um, And from there, I want you to go into that because a lot of people use that like fiber and you say how like the fiber is a myth. So I, I want you to address the bad relationship with vegetables and tie that into how fiber is a myth and explain to our listeners, okay, if my relationship with vegetables maybe isn't the best thing for me, where do I get my fiber? Because don't I need fiber to be healthy and to lose weight?
2: Yeah, you don't. I mean, the, the, the Cliff Notes answer is you don't need fiber <laughs> to be healthy or lose weight. And we can talk about that. And yes, there's a whole chapter do. in the book about fiber. Yes. Um, so when I come to fiber, I'll tell you a story about my friend who was in the Rangers okay. in the army. Um, but if you think about it from the perspective of kale or spinach or a plant, it makes a lot more sense. So we might say, I hear this people all the time, but I love kale. And I say, well, kale doesn't love you back. Like (laughs) kale is a plant that's a brassica. It's a leaf that you're eating of a plant. And does that plant want you eating its leaf? No. If you eat enough of those leaves, you will kill the plant. If you eat the seeds, you're going to kill the plant. And if you eat the roots, you're going to kill the plant. And so what's to stop all the animals on the planet from just going to town on kale? If everybody loves kale, you can just eat kale. It's sort of like all plants are edible, There's, everything is good for you, and really the way that humans can be healthy is by eating plants all day. It doesn't work like that. Plants are rooted in the ground. They've had a co-evolution with animals for the last 450 million years, and out of necessity, they've had to evolve toxins. We don't really know about these. We're never told about toxins in kale, but there are many. And there are many toxins in spinach, there are many toxins in all kinds of plant foods that we're never told about because nobody tells us about them because kale has a really good publicist. <laughs> and yeah, and so, you know, in the case of kale, you have a plant leaf from a plant that's rooted in the ground. And what, what is kale doing to defend itself? Well, it has a whole series of booby traps. It starts with molecules called glucosinolates, which turn, you know, um, which are then, you know, made into isothiocyanates, So how are glucosinolates made into isothiocyanates? Well, glucosinolates combine with an enzyme called myrosinase when the plant is chewed. So many people who like kale or broccoli that are in the same family, they're essentially the exact same plant, have heard of this molecule called sulforaphane. And they think, oh, sulforaphane is good for me. And so the question that I ask them is, how much sulforaphane is in a broccoli plant or a kale leaf? Do you have any idea? I don't. None. (laughs) There's none. None. There's no sulforaphane in broccoli or kale until you chew it because it's a booby trap because sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant and then you get into organic chemistry and you have to talk about what a pro-oxidant or an antioxidant is, but a pro-oxidant is a reactive molecule that goes into the body or into an environmental system and takes electrons from other molecules. Oxidation and reduction are the movement of electrons, the gain and loss of electrons. And so sulforaphane, we've been told, is an antioxidant and that's just false no organic chemist, no general chemist would get out of, you know, the first year of college chemistry if they said sulforaphane was an antioxidant. Sulforaphane is not an antioxidant. It's a pro-oxidant. You're moving the electron in the wrong direction if you think it's an antioxidant. So we've been told sulforaphane is an antioxidant. That's the lie. And there's no sulforaphane in broccoli until you chew it because sulforaphane is a defense chemical. Because sulforaphane is a pro-oxidant and its job is to run around stealing electrons from other molecules, its job is to oxidize molecules. So, foraphane's job is to create free radicals. And now I'm talking about things that people are familiar with and they understand they're not good. So, foraphane's job is to create free radicals, and it does. So, foraphane creates free radicals in our body. It creates lipid peroxides. It creates free radicals. It creates damaged proteins. It does all sorts of bad things in our body. But it does that as a booby trap. It's a precursor form. It's a glucosinolate called glucoraphanin. And then when you chew it, or an animal chews it, or an insect chews it, myrosinase combines with glucoraphanin and makes sulforaphane. In a lot of these plants, this is only the tip of the iceberg in terms of the isothiocyanates. There's goitrin, there's allyl isothiocyanate, there's hundreds of chemicals in cabbage and kale and broccoli that serve the same roles. There's tons of isothiocyanates out there. Many of them are even more toxic to our body systemically than sulforaphane. So the confusion continues to arise because sulforaphane comes into the human body And because it's a pro-oxidant, it triggers an antioxidant response pathway in the human body called the NRF2 system. And a lot of things that we experience trigger the NRF2 system. There's a protein called KEEP1, K-E-A-P-1, which holds onto NRF2 in the cytoplasm. And when when there's oxidative stress, when there are more free radicals, Mm -hmm. NRF2 disassociates, goes to the nucleus and turns on genes involved in the antioxidant response. So foraphane turns on our antioxidant response. Well, you know what else turns on our antioxidant response? Mercury, lead, cigarette smoke, alcohol, lots of things cause oxidation. Mm -hmm. And even things like exercise or fasting or heat or cold stress can turn on those oxidative mechanisms. So we see things that we think of as both good and bad can do it. And this is in the book where I differentiate environmental hormesis from molecular hormesis because everyone, I think everyone gets confused here and people don't understand the difference. And it's, again, it's just something that's been, I think, incorrectly communicated. It's been a myopic perspective to think of these molecules as hormetics. Because if you listen to Rhonda Patrick or somebody else, they'll say, oh, so is a is a hormetic. It's good for you. A little bit of a poison is good for you. And I disagree with that strongly. I think we've got it all wrong. And I'll tell you why. So sulforaphane comes into the human body, it triggers NRF2, which turns on the antioxidant response system, you get more glutathione, you get more superoxide dismutase, and if you only look at the response of the antioxidant system in your body to sulforaphane, you might see a short-term bump in antioxidants, in endogenous antioxidants, not exogenous, endogenous, we have antioxidants in our body, glutathione, mm-hmm. superoxidus mutase. That's what we use. So, does not act as an antioxidant in the human body, nor does any molecule from plants. Plants do not play a unique role in human biochemistry. They are not vitamins. These molecules are not vitamins. They are not minerals. They are just influencing our biochemistry, but they do not have unique roles. So, sulforaphane comes in, it can trigger more glutathione, which in the short term can make it look like you're doing better but it forgets the other side effects, and it's a redundant effect. So no one talks about the side effects of sulforaphane, but there are many. The isothiocyanates are a family of compounds that are well-studied and well-known mm-hmm. to affect iodine absorption at the level of the thyroid. Right.
1: Yeah. Have
2: you ever seen these people in Africa with the really big necks or South yes. America? That's a goiter. Yeah. That's a goiter. It's called endemic goiter. Mm-hmm. These compounds are called goitrogens. They're goitrogens because they prevent the proper absorption of iodine. Mm-hmm. So if you are low in iodine or not getting enough iodine, or you're eating a low iodine diet, or you're eating a diet that's very high in goitrogenic foods, which are clearly not the ideal foods for humans, you can get iodine deficient.
0: It is now more important than ever to take care of your health and support your immune system. Discover the five best ways to boost your immune system in a free 23-page report. Go to strongbydesignimmune.com and download the report today.
2: I think there's a large amount of people that have improper function of their thyroid at subclinical levels, even in the US, from eating lots of these foods because they're not getting enough iodine to their thyroid. It's grossly evident pathologically in these huge goiters, these huge necks. What do people in South America and Africa eat? They eat a lot of cassava. Cassava is another goitrogen which contains isothiocyanates, and they have a low iodine diet. Where do we get iodine? We get iodine from animal foods, Mm -hmm. things like eggs or from fish or seafood or certain organs of of animals. So we see here that plants are fighting against us. If we just ate lots of kale and you don't get enough animal foods, you're going to get iodine deficient. You're going to get a goiter. You're going to get thyroid disease. You're not going to be able to reproduce, and your species is going to be dead. So plants are clearly not interested in you eating them kale doesn't want you to eat it. And so (laughs) then the response is, okay, I get it, but isn't the risk worth the benefit? Isn't Isn't the hormesis from sulforaphane worth the benefit? And I say, no, absolutely not, because the benefit is redundant. There are so many ways we can employ what I call environmental hormesis to benefit us, and we don't need molecular hormesis. Invariably, this was one of the crazy things that I discovered as I was writing the book, when we try and use plant molecules as hormetics, this is molecular hormesis, it fails because they always have side effects. They're always going to go somewhere else in the body and do something wrong because they're not part of our operating system. I talk about this operating systems concept in the, in the book as well. And you can see this with all sorts of molecules, resveratrol, curcumin, sulforaphane, I give lots of examples, isoflavones, genistein, all sorts of uh, molecules in the body that come from plants, quercetin. You see the same thing. You see side effects, side effects, side effects. We're never told about the side effects. We're only told about the quote benefits, but the benefits invariably are redundant. They're things that we can attain by just living well. So you can turn on more glutathione just by doing heat stress and cold stress. If you just jump in a cold pool like the cold water swimmers in Berlin mm-hmm. that I mentioned in the book, you can increase your glutathione. You can create oxidative stress and bump your glutathione by just living well. You don't need sulforaphane to get more glutathione or to get optimal amounts of glutathione. That's never been shown. In fact, the opposite has been shown repeatedly. When people who are living reasonable lives eliminate all fruits and vegetables from their diet and a vegetable less fruit and you know a fruit and vegetable less diet is compared to a diet that has fruit and vegetables. Researchers over the course of 4, 8, 10, 12 weeks don't see an improvement. They don't see an improvement. They don't see lower levels of inflammation. They don't see lower levels of DNA damage. They don't see any differences between those two groups. It's very hard, I think, to make the case that vegetables have a clear benefit in humans from an oxidative stress, from a DNA damage perspective. There are multiple interventional studies that I talk about in the book that clearly demonstrate that the complete removal of fruits and vegetables does nothing. And the inclusion of fruits and vegetables does nothing. There's even one study in the book where the removal of fruits and vegetables led to better outcomes, lower levels of oxidative stress, lower levels of DNA damage, lower levels of inflammation. So to make the the case to say fruit and vegetables are good for us is like, well, I'm not sure that's entirely supported by the literature. I think that we can tolerate them, that we have the ability to detoxify some of these things in our body. That's what our phase one and phase two detoxification systems are for in the liver. But plants are not the ideal food for humans. (laughs) And kale is a plant that lives in the ground. It doesn't want you eating its leaves. It doesn't love you back. Mm-hmm. You might be able to detoxify that to a point, but I don't think it's giving you anything unique. You don't need the sulforaphane and kale to get extra you know, glutathione. You have plenty of glutathione if you're exercising, if you're in the sun, if you're sauna, if you're cold plunging, if you're living the life that any normal human on this planet should be living that most of your listeners are already doing, you don't need that. And then you avoid the side effects. Why take a A medicine, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. why take a molecule from a plant for a redundant benefit when you also get all these negative side effects with it. So that's, I think, where people have been misled. And if you look at the plant molecules time and time again, you see the same thing over and over. There's no net benefit to sulforaphane. It's a net negative. Mm -hmm. Spinach is the same way. Spinach is full of oxalates. You know, the leafy greens are all full of this stuff. So, and we see this with many molecules. The same is true with resveratrol. You can activate the sirtuins just by fasting. Just by doing ketosis, you can activate your sirtuin genes. You don't need resveratrol. Resveratrol is a phytoalexin. It's a plant defense chemical produced in the skin of grapes and peanuts Mm -hmm. when they're attacked by the botrytis fungus. It also happens to look a lot like 17-beta estradiol in humans and trigger the estrogen receptor, which is what we call a xenoestrogen, much like BPA or phthalates or parabens. Both men and women don't want to be over-triggering the 17-beta estradiol receptor. You don't want xenoestrogens in your body we're avoiding plastics like the plague today and we're all worried about microplastics and then we're going and we're taking resveratrol pills which do very similar things in our physiology. Resveratrol has been shown to lower levels of androgen precursors in the human body. So these molecules are not good for humans. It's a redundant benefit with a net negative side effect that we're never told about. The same is true with curcumin. The same is true over and over. So these magical plant molecules are nothing magical at all. They're just bad for us. And your body wants to detoxify them. Your body wants to get rid of them. If your ancestors were forced to eat kale, they were in dire straits. And that's probably why sauerkraut is a thing. Because if you ferment the cabbage, which is in the same family as kale, you degrade, you destroy many of those glucosinolates so they don't turn into sulforaphane. So if you ferment the plants, you can make them less toxic. But that you're just basically eating it for calories to survive. It's clearly not the ideal food. If a food is trying that hard to kill you or that hard to prevent you from having babies, that food is not good for you. You can eat it in a pinch. And we probably did when, we, when our hunts were not successful. But why not just get more of the optimal food for humans? In the book, I talk about the bioavailability of nutrients and all these things. Like, There's really no more optimal food for humans than animal organs and meat in terms of nutrient content, nutrient bioavailability. I know I'm rambling here, but the last part of your question was on fiber, which is an equally yes. deep rabbit hole. So if you like, I'll go down that one.
1: Yes, so, please.
2: So I just want to make it very clear that molecules like polyphenols and isothiocyanates are not good for humans. And I will debate anyone any day of the week on that. It's not, it's, we've, we've been told a, the wrong story there. These are not made for humans. They're made for plants, generally to defend plants from predators. They're defense molecules. So then people say, well, what about fiber? Don't I need fiber? And you don't. There's a whole chapter in the book about this. You don't need fiber to poop. Fiber doesn't prevent cancer. Fiber doesn't prevent diverticulosis. Fiber isn't necessary for an optimal microbiome. I will debate anyone on those notions as well. There are now thousands of people that are living proof of improvements in their GI health when they eliminate fiber. There's a very striking study that I referenced in the book from the 2012 in the uh, World Journal of Gastroenterology. And they took three groups of people, all of which had idiopathic constipation. So constipation that their doctors couldn't figure out the cause of, and they hadn't been able to treat. And they gave one group zero fiber, one group a moderate amount of fiber and one group fiber as usual. Which group did the best? The group with zero fiber completely resolved gas bloating and constipation symptoms. A hundred percent of them resolved it. A hundred percent. So this is an interventional study and this has been replicated for many people Their GI issues are related to plant fiber. And the mainstream narrative is if you have gut issues, eat more fiber. Oh my God, my gut hurts. I fart so much. I have horrible poops. Eat more fiber. You need more fiber. You need more vegetables. No, I'm here to tell you that's completely wrong. It's completely the wrong way to do it. I poop every day. It's beautiful. It's easy to pass. I don't (laughs) fart anymore. I used to be a vegan. I was a raw vegan for seven months, about 13 years ago. I lost 25 pounds of muscle mass, lean muscle mass, I had the worst gas of my life. I was a nightmare to be around in any enclosed space. And it was embarrassing. (laughs) It was horrible, right? right? What happened when I added meat? Everything got way better. Mm -hmm. And now that I don't eat any vegetables, I like, it's just, this is, you know, it's not crass. It just, it's really nice not to fart. It's really (laughs) nice not to have gas around people you care about when you're on a date, you know, whatever. You just don't want to, I mean, it's fun to fart around your kids sometimes, but generally speaking, like gas is not an indication that your gut is healthy and, most people will find incredible resolution in their GI symptoms, gas bloating, constipation, pain, bleeding, when they eliminate plant fiber. But we've been told, just like everything else, I think if your listeners are are still with us on the podcast, they're starting to see the pattern here. Everything you've been told about nutrition should be questioned. And I think everything you've been told about nutrition is probably wrong.
1: Hmm.
2: Because everything you've been told about nutrition was based on the last 60 years of nutritional ideology which is completely false and based on little more than observational studies. But in terms of constipation, there's no good evidence that fiber prevents constipation or that constipation is a lack of fiber. There are thousands of people who are not constipated who have no fiber in their diet. Fiber will give you bigger poops, but it doesn't make your poops better quality, easier to pass, or less painful. Fiber is not the solution for constipation in any way, shape, or form.
0: Our team would like to thank you so much for listening to the strong by design podcast. And if you're enjoying today's show, please share this episode with at least one friend or family member who will benefit from this message and please subscribe. So you don't miss any future episodes. Go to strong by design That's strong by design Let's get back to the show cancer is another concern and there are two sides to this
2: equation. There's the the red meat causes cancer and there's the fiber prevents cancer. Anyone who tells you fiber prevents cancer is absolutely wrong and should be thrown out of whatever profession they're in because (laughs) there are are three landmark trials in 1999 and 2000, two of which are in the New England Journal of Medicine. All of these are noted in the book, which really show that fiber doesn't prevent cancer. These were four and eight years long and they were interventional trials with both increased fruits and vegetables and a fiber supplement. No change in, in colon cancer incidence or pre-colon cancer incidents in any of those trials. Fiber does not prevent human colon cancer. The flip side of that is a whole other chapter of the book about red meat and cancer of the gut, like mm-hmm. GI cancer. It's never been shown. The WHO ruling in 2015 that red meat is a carcinogen is based on observational studies. There's a story about that that's just so strikingly scary and just unfortunate to tell. The group met. In 2015, it's composed of a number of physicians and scientists, a number of people have come out and talked about how corrupt it was. The majority of people on that group were vegetarians, and they reviewed over 400 studies and only included 14 studies in the decision, 14, all of which were epidemiology. Every single study in the WHO 2015 IARC report is epidemiology. Of those 14 studies, how many do you think showed an association between red meat and cancer? the minority. There were eight studies that showed no association between red meat and cancer. Eight. Eight of 14, no association. Hmm. Six of 14 showed an association between red meat and cancer, but only one of those six showed a statistically significant association between red meat and cancer. So you have 14 studies out of 400 or so. They ignored 386 studies that are interventional They chose 14, the majority of which showed no association between red meat and cancer. The six that did show associations, only one was statistically significant. And that one study was done in Loma Linda, California, where people are primarily Seventh-day Adventists. And the data is probably pretty badly confounded by the fact that people eating red meat in Loma Linda, California, Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarian. What do we know about vegetarians who eat red meat? they're probably not healthy in general because they're ignoring all health advice. They're the rebels. They're probably also eating more, drinking more. They're more obese. And if you look at that study, the people who ate more red meat in that one study were also more obese. They were much more likely to have insulin resistance. That is the true driver of cancer. Metabolic dysfunction, not red meat. Why would something that humans have been eating for 4 million years be causing us to get cancer? That makes no sense. Why would something that humans have been eating for 4 million years be causing us to have heart attacks. It makes no sense. Mm. We have to think about it contextually. We're too amnestic in 2020. We're very short-sighted. We can't imagine those numbers. All we know is what we've been told for the last 60 years. I think most of us have to just take a deep breath and say, holy shit, I've been brainwashed. <laughs> I've been freaking brainwashed because mm-hmm. what information have you been told? And the story goes on and on with, with red meat and cancer, with red meat and, um, you know, with fiber and diverticulosis also. So, I mean, it's the same story over and over. If you look at diverticulosis, which is outpouchings in the colon, right. there's no evidence that fiber prevents that. And in fact, there are studies that show that people who eat more fiber have more diverticulosis. So it's just, it's just, it's just so ironic that, that fiber has been touted for so many things. The last piece of that, and perhaps the most insidious piece, is this notion that's not supported by science that we need fiber for a healthy gut microbiome. And that's predicated on, the, on a fact that we know what a healthy gut microbiome is. I I don't know what a healthy gut microbiome is. Do you know what a healthy gut microbiome is? There are more than a thousand (laughs) species. There are more than a thousand species of microbes in every single person's gut and they're different. Mm -hmm. We can't say that just because you have this bacteria or that bacteria, your microbiome is healthy. I think clinically we can say you don't have gas bloating or constipation. You have regular bowel movements. Your gut is probably fine or your gut is messed up. You get pain after you eat, you get gas, you get constipation, you get bloating. Those are the indicators we have. We don't know what organisms make a healthy gut microbiome. That's absurd. Anyone who tells you what a healthy gut microbiome is is just making stuff up. They're making it up. The Hadza hunter-gatherers, for instance, don't even have bifidobacteria. So why do we say bifidobacteria is good for us? Like, there, are, it's an ecosystem. There are niches. And if there's a niche, it can be occupied by multiple different bacteria. We're just beginning to understand what a healthy gut microbiome is. So it's true that fiber will increase the incidence of Or the numbers of lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, but we don't even know if those are good for humans. And if you eat fiber and it gives you more gas and bloating and constipation, why are you why is this a good thing? It doesn't make any sense. We've gone all wrong. People sometimes use alpha diversity as a measure of gut health. Well, I can tell you that my alpha diversity was zero fiber in my diet is just fine. It's actually 94. I tested it with longevity. Uh, one of these companies. And so I have more alpha, di- I have a higher alpha diversity, which is a measure of ecosystems diversity within uh, an a- ecological niche. Um, I'm higher than 94% of people. I'm higher than most vegans. So alpha diversity doesn't increase with fiber and it doesn't decrease when you take fiber out. There's studies that show all these things. So there's just a total myth that you need plant fiber to have a healthy gut microbiome. Then you can talk about short chain fatty acids like butyrate, And most people don't know that protein from meat or collagen can make butyrate too. And isobutyrate and propionate and acetate. Short-chain fatty acids are these molecules that are useful for the gut epithelium, specifically the colonic epithelium for fuel. But you can make those out of protein just as well as you can out of plant fiber. So there's actually some really interesting studies in cheetahs that uh, showing that that animal fiber, quote-unquote, like collagen – can be used to make all of the same short chain fatty acids. So, and now there are thousands of people, tens of thousands of people doing primarily animal-based diets, but not developing Crohn's. I've never seen a case of Crohn's develop on a carnivore diet. You know, if if, if we needed so much fiber for a healthy gut microbiome, Mm -hmm. there should be people having inflammatory bowel disease all over the place. And in fact, I've seen hundreds of cases of Crohn's resolve on a carnivore diet. I've seen, you know, many cases of ulcerative colitis resolve on a carnivore diet. I've never seen anyone get bowel problems on a carnivore diet. I've only seen hundreds, if not thousands of cases resolve. Mm
0: -hmm. Inflammatory
2: bowel, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, irritable bowel, IBS, et cetera. So it's just, I mean, the data is there. The clinical data is there. And it's just speculation for people to say, oh, you lost lactobacillus when you eliminated plant fiber. Therefore, it's not a healthy diet. Well, I don't know. I don't really want to be in the room very long with many of the plant-based doctors (laughs) And you tell me who's got his healthier. So did that answer all those questions?
1: It did.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Strong by Design podcast. To help our show reach more listeners just like you, please let us know how we've changed your life by leaving a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Go to strongbydesignpodcast.com. That's strongbydesignpodcast.com. Let's get back to the show.
1: I think there is probably a lot of people listening. Just all the you know, there is a, a, a hopefully a mind, like a mind shift. I think people are again, like I say, they're starting to ask more questions and starting to you know be an advocate for their own health and, and ask questions and look at other possibilities um, because it does. Uh, and this was the next kind of the next uh, part I wanted to go into. It just seems like you can't turn on a computer or a TV or anything and not hear something about autoimmune inflammation. Um, It seems very rampant. Um, It almost seems to be, and I'm not, I don't want to make light of it, anybody that has any of these issues, but it almost seems to be like a trend. Like it just seems like there's a lot of Disease, illness, chronic health issues that come down to you know at the at the end of the interview, at the end of the conversation, the word inflammation has been in there several 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 times. How can this you know how can this uh, nose to tail way of eating, this lifestyle, impact what seems to be like like an epidemic in human health? This these issues with inflammation, autoimmune, and also cog- our cognitive health, our mental health. What's the impact?
2: Right. Well, in terms of cognitive health, it's really quite clear that the nutrients found in animal meat and organs are what our brains need to function. Uh, you can, you know, vegetarians and vegans are deficient in creatine, and if you give them creatine, they get smarter. Where's creatine, it's in red meat and liver and heart and spleen and kidney. Uh, where are the where are the bioavailable essential fatty acids? They are in animal foods. K two B twelve. How do how do you grow a big brain? You get lots of niacin, you get lots of riboflavin, you get lots of B twelve. Where are those B vitamins primarily? They're in animal foods. So if you want a smart kid or a, you want to be smart, you better eat animal organs and meat, and maybe throw in some egg yolks there as well from well raised chickens. But you gotta get those animal foods. And you know, in the last week, Joe Rogan has had both Miley Cyrus and Mike Tyson on his podcast. Both of right. them had horror yeah. stories to tell about. <laughs> their vegan days. And, you know, Mike Tyson is so funny. He goes, kale kills me. And Miley <laughs> just said she couldn't even think. I've interviewed a number of high profile vegans, Elise Parker, Tim Sheaf, on my podcast, and almost all of them just end up crashing after a number of years with low libido, brain fog. You don't have the nutrients your brain needs. Where are those nutrients? They are in animal foods. They are not in plant foods. And then, You know, your other question is, how does this affect autoimmunity? That's the $64,000 question. Mm. What is causing this epidemic of chronic disease? And I think it's a variety of things. I think at some level, it comes down to the gut. I think that a lot of these plant toxins are damaging the gut. And where is our immune system primarily? It's around the gut. It's in a layer of cells called lamina propria, which is separated from the inside of the gut and trillions of bacteria and fungi and organisms by one cell layer thick epithelium. And if that cell layer gets damaged or becomes leaky because of antigens in our gut, then it, those antigens come in contact with our, with our immune system. And I don't know if, you know, there's plenty of good cell culture data showing that cells in our gut can become leaky, or at least the model system suggests they become leaky when we put in a lot of plant molecules. When we put in anything from the nightshade family, tomatoes, bell peppers, hot peppers, it's hot in your mouth because it's poisonous. <laughs> It's hot in your mouth because it's trying to destroy your gut and saying, Stop eating me, you jerk. I mean, I don't know why we keep eating these things. (laughs) Um, And then it it hurts when you poop, too. That's not an indication. I don't know what is. And so (laughs) it's just these things all open our gap junctions. And many people know they have sensitivities to nightshades. And gluten is the same way. This fragment of, you know, this wheat protein has clearly been shown to open the gap junctions in our gut in, in cell culture by increasing the trans epithelial electrical gradient. And so that's a whole set of ideas. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's, it's also an absence or a dearth of the nutrients we need to have a healthy gut, which are found in animal foods. How many people in 2020 are deficient in zinc or copper or molybdenum or selenium or biotin or, z- or riboflavin or folate or retinoic acid or K2? You need these things to have healthy cells. You need these nutrients and those nutrients are found in the most bioavailable forms in animal foods. Mm-hmm. So it's those things, and I think it's the inclusion of massive amounts of linoleic acid in our diet, which are hugely damaging to humans. But I think the answer is, kind of like I elaborated at the beginning of the podcast, start with meat and organs. Start with meat and organs. Don't fear them. Get it from well-raised animals. And organs are critical. We're not just talking about ribeyes here. I've said liver and heart and kidney and spleen and pancreas multiple times. And people can't eat those, but you know your ancestors did. And if you look at the nutrient profile, if you look at the nutrient distribution, there are many things contained in in animal organs that are not found in red meat. And I know that this will be hard for people to eat. And so I think of my sister and her kids, my niece and nephew and my parents. And that's why we built Heart and Soil. So I've got this company, we make these desiccated organ supplements and that is why we do that, to get people this grass-fed, grass-finished organs and capsules in the easiest way possible. So, but if you get them fresh, that's amazing. If you can't get them fresh, consider desiccated organs like we make. But get those in your diet. There are unique nutrients. And I think that most people, many people I hear from say they they take the organs and the capsules or they eat the organs fresh and they just they've never felt as good in their life. It's unique nutrients. And the same step function could be seen when you get rid of lots of the toxic plant foods. So include animal meat and organs. Get rid of the most toxic plant foods, and don't eat linoleic acid. Do not eat excess amounts. There's a little bit of linoleic acid in animal foods. It's not toxic, right. But excess amounts of linoleic acid, I believe, are signaling incorrectly in humans. And so, you know, it's it's a, it's an interesting thing. But I think that it's just it's pissing off our gut. It's damaging our gut mm-hmm. because of these plant toxins, because of linoleic acid, and we're not giving our body the nutrients it needs to repair it. And therein begins autoimmune disease. I don't think that. I think that more and more physicians would, would be willing to entertain the hypothesis that a lot of autoimmunity, a lot of inflammation begins in the gut. And that's, that's duh. It's because yeah. the, that's because it's the food you're eating. Right. <laughs> and those on the plant-based side would say, oh, it's meat. And I would challenge them to show me a single interventional study that shows that meat is inflammatory because it's not. Right. Uh, not something we've been eating forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's plants that are, that are pissing off our gut. The plants <laughs> are the ones with toxins, not animals. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that I, I want people to stop eating all plants just to help them understand what the most toxic... And the least toxic plants are.
1: Right. Cause I, I, um, I'm going to talk, or I'm going to get you to talk about this uh, on page 227, uh, tier one carnivore looks like, cause I'm, I'm looking at that and going, my dad would absolutely just be dancing on this cause he's all about meats. And, and again, like I said, as a kid growing up, my dad being from a farm and you know, we always had a huge garden. I grew up eating Oregon meats. I didn't have a choice. And the, and what really kind of Pissed me off was that every Friday, you think of this being a kid in grade three, walking home from school, knowing that your Friday dinner was liver. It was liver for dinner every Friday while my friends were having pizza, spaghetti, and meatballs. I was walking home to liver, but that's how I grew up. So, we, you know, we grew up eating the heart and the liver, and um, thankfully, my mother was a fantastic cook, that it, it wasn't that bad. So, I, I do think there's probably going to be people listening going, ooh, organ meats. I mean, don't organ meats give you high cholesterol? Won't they cause – you know, all of those things we talked about earlier when, when we were talking in the podcast. So you do have this company. I was looking at your your supplements for the desiccated organ meats. And if somebody came to you and said, okay, look, you know, um, I've I've been I've read your book. I think what you're saying, you know, I, it's resonating with me. I haven't been feeling well. I've got these issues but i can't do it all what where can i start so somebody that's listening that's like you know what i'm having these problems i don't feel great i have no energy i'm too young to feel this old maybe what he's saying is maybe this is this is something i need to to think more about and take more seriously but you know they go to the website and they're like well where do i start where does somebody start like how does that single mom of three kids how does she start where does she
2: start well i think that, she, that that's why you make A supplement that's actually food, right? It's most people can take a pill. Yeah. And I want it to be a gateway. Uh, It's a capsule. It's made from food. There's nothing synthetic in it. So a single mom can take a capsule, can take six capsules of beef organ supplement, and get you know liver, heart, kidney, spleen, and pancreas every day. And I think of that as like the ultimate multivitamin. There's nothing synthetic. It's just organs. You get nutrition. So that's the easiest thing. You don't have to do anything except take six capsules a day, or even less. And there's a bone marrow and liver supplement. We've also got gut and digestion supplement. We've got all kinds of supplements that are made from food. So that's what's nice about supplements. It makes it easy. But I want it to be the first step on a lifestyle change for someone. And the second step would be eliminate linoleic acid from vegetable oils. So get your linoleic acid level down as much as possible. We also make a supplement called Firestarter which is a high stearic acid tallow. And so I think that this ratio between linoleic acid and stearic acid is critical. Stearic acid appears to tell our fat cells to shrink and linoleic acid appears to tell our fat cells to grow. So of course, there's a small amount of linoleic acid in our foods, but hunter-gatherer tribes only had like 1.6%, 2% Mm -hmm. of their diets is linoleic acid. And in 2020, we're eating 10 times that amount. So I think we're giving our fat cells way more signals to grow than we should be. Way more signals, and we're not giving our fat cells enough of the stearic acid signal to shrink, which is from animal foods. So we have a supplement called Firestarter, which is the stearic acid. So it starts with just whatever dietary change you can make, but really eliminating vegetable oils that is corn, canola, soy, peanut, safflower, sunflower, and getting those out of your diet as much as possible, and you'll be amazed if you don't eat vegetable oils, you will not be able to eat processed food because every processed food has vegetable oil in it. You have to know what your food is cooked in. But if you eliminate vegetable oils, just that in and of itself will help a lot of people. And if you take desiccated organs, you'll be getting good nutrients. So that's the first jumping off point. Those are the Mm -hmm. easy steps. The harder steps are getting more fresh organs or getting more meat. And then probably the the most difficult step for people will be, okay, here's the spectrum of plant toxicity that Paul's laid out. How am I going to get rid of these foods and include the least toxic plant foods? But as you've said, there is a construction of an animal-based diet, what I would call carnivore-ish, which I think is going to appeal to the most people in the book, which is includes plant foods. It includes the, what I consider to be the least toxic plant foods, things yeah, like Yeah, because you have
1: plants listed. You have some plants yeah. listed in here.
2: Yeah, berries, uh-huh. avocados, yep. squash. Cucumbers. Cucumbers. Yeah, I think those are less toxic plant foods. So when I describe a carnivore diet to someone, they think, I could never do that. But when I say, what if you could eat berries and peaches and avocados and strawberries and squash, and cucumbers, they say, I could do that. I could do that. And so the nuance here is so many of the plant foods we've been told are good for us. Leafy greens like kale, they just don't like you. Get rid of those and get rid of the seeds. The seeds, nuts, grains, and legumes. So beans are seeds. Oops, legumes, sorry. nuts are seeds. You know. Sorry about that. Uh, grains are seeds.
1: Sorry, yes, grains are seeds.
2: <laughs> grains are seeds, I didn't even hear it. Uh, uh I was talking too loud over it. Grains are seeds. The, all these things are seeds. And so the seeds are the most highly defended part of the plant. So in the book I lay it all out. Nightshades, high oxalate plant foods, seeds. These are the things you don't want in your diet. And that's where I think it gets to be unique. It's it's kind of a reinterpretation of paleo diets in some ways, saying what did our ancestors eat? Mm. What are what what plants are helpful? What parts of plants are good for us and what parts of plants are the least or the most toxic? I think plant seeds are the most toxic part. If you eliminate plant seeds, my goodness, you're going to feel so much better. So many reasons. And then leaves. Plant leaves don't want to get eaten. They don't want you to eat them. So
1: um, you talk about eliminating vegetable oils. So should people be using butter? Things like butter. um, What what would you like if someone says, okay, so what about, you know, is avocado oil better? Should I be using coconut oil? What do I use as a as a cooking fat.
2: Right. So, here's the first question. Why are people cooking in fat? Uh, um, (laughs) I don't know why you need to cook in fat in general. If you have a steak, you can just cook it in a pan without fat. If you want to Mm -hmm. cook in fat, then coconut oil is better or just tallow is better, Mm -hmm. just animal fat. Not lard necessarily, but tallow Mm -hmm. is good. Uh, A lot of pigs are fed corn and soy and their fat gets high in linoleic acid. That's kind of the the upper level understanding of this, but I don't want to make it too hard for people. But yeah, I mean, butter can be great if you're not sensitive to dairy. I think a lot of people are sensitive to dairy. So be aware that there are even animal foods that can trigger people Mm -hmm. and there are dairy and eggs. And so there's an autoimmune version of a carnivore diet, which I think is one of the most powerful elimination diets out there, which is really just grass-fed meat, grass-fed organs or desiccated organ supplements, uh, bone broth, salt, and uh, a a carbohydrate if you need either a berries or a squash or something it's very simple but it eliminates it eliminates milk it eliminates eggs eliminates all those things and if you can if you can eat eggs great if you can do milk great but for a lot of people eliminating milk is helpful and i think that this is an interesting kind of segue as an aside i fear that so many who have found benefit with vegan diets have thrown the baby out with the bathwater these are people who don't react well to milk and eggs And they've said, aha, I got rid of milk and eggs and some processed food and I feel way better. But I fear they've thrown out liver and meat and those are really nutritious foods that they would do better on their diets. And so I do think there's a lot of benefit to some people eliminating eggs and dairy. I don't recommend that right up front. But if you're really sick, if you have really significant autoimmune diseases, you probably do want to eliminate those and then reintroduce them.
1: Okay, cool. So... Now I want people to know where, like, I want you to talk a little bit about, I I love the name nose to tail, um, because you really do talk about the whole animal. It's the whole animal. So explain the philosophy behind the nose to tail diet, um, for, for our listeners to get a better understanding of that.
2: It's just the idea that if your ancestors or my ancestors were out hunting something, they eat the whole animal. You don't waste anything. And there's unique nutrient partitioning. Like I said, red meat is great. It's high in zinc and iron and Um, some things like that has b12 but it doesn't have any folate doesn't have much folate doesn't have enough riboflavin doesn't have any retinoic acid doesn't have enough copper there's partitioning of different nutrients throughout the animal and there are unique benefits to eating organs and there's unique benefits to eating collagen and connective tissue many people are kind of hip to the collagen train now but collagen is a good source of glycine It's it's an amino acid that balances methionine in our body in terms of our biochemistry. So our ancestors didn't just eat the muscle meat. They made stews and broths and the bone broth and they, made, they ate the bones sometimes and they would eat bone marrow and they'd eat the brain and get fatty acids there. And then there is these unique signaling molecules, peptides that are found throughout the body that we're just beginning to learn about. I mean, the stomach contains special signaling peptides like BPC-157 and liver has peptides. And there's these incredible molecules that serve signaling roles in the human body that we've basically forgotten about and so the spleen has compounds in it splenin tuftsin, and that seem to be very valuable for humans um, kidney has peptides kidney has unique enzymes diamine oxidase it degrades histamine so you just find there's so much more nutritionally we're learning than we've thought about and it just makes sense none of it's complex it's what we always did we're just starting to understand the science to back it up
1: mm-hmm. So I just, I, I pulled up the website, Heart and Soil, because that's your company name, Yeah, correct? So um, tell our listeners about that, you know, um, what, they, what they can find there, um, and where else they can find you, because you're on Instagram, you do have a website, you've got the book, The Carnivore yeah. MD, you've got a, yeah. a company with a supplement line, so talk about that so that our listeners know where to go um, to find out more, um, and to connect with you.
2: The best place is heartandsoil.co.co. That's our website. We put everything there. So I've written all the copy on that website. There's information about regenerative agriculture, about nose to tail eating. There's information about me. There's links to my book. All of my podcasts are there. All my videos are there. And you can find the desiccated organ supplements there if you want. There's a blog there. It's an information hub. So there's a lot at heartandsoil.co.
1: There's a lot here. There's a lot at (laughs)
2: heartandsoil.co. That's the simplest way. You can find it all there. Um, and that's the best place to go. If you want to find me on Instagram, I'm at carnivoremd, but all of that is linked at heartandsoil.co, heartandsoil.co.
1: Okay. And again, the book is The Carnivore MD. What's your IG? Carnivore code. The oh, carnivore, carnivore code. sorry. The Carnivore code. You're the Carnivore MD, but the I'm book carnivore is there's yeah, the yeah. Carnivore Code. It is, it's, um, there's a lot, there's a lot of information here and there's a lot of like how to's. Like you do lay it out, uh, you do lay it out quite simply for somebody that, like I said, somebody that's listening, that's feeling like this is resonating with them. Um, Again, it's not a diet. It is a lifestyle. I really want to make that point for people because this isn't something you jump on and do for six weeks before you go to Cancun. Um, This is a lifestyle because uh, you are a doctor. You are all about health and healing. Um, But the book does provide, like it's a usable resource for someone that's really not, uh, not sure.
2: Yeah, it's it's extensive. I mean, it's funny, you know, you write a book, you can never please everybody. I've had no. <laughs> criticisms of the book that it's, I've had people say that it's too technical and people say it's not technical enough, which I think is crazy because there's over 650 references. So, mm. you know, the first part of the book is debunking all the arguments. If you're already bought in based on this podcast, you can skip to chapter 12 and just look at how to do the diet. And then chapter 13 is commonly asked, you know, uh, you know pitfalls and there's frequently asked questions in the appendix. And there's an index and there's, um, there's all the references there if you want to know the science. But I had to write a book that was comprehensive to answer the critics. You can't just write a book and say, here's how to eat a carnivore diet, because you have to defend a carnivore diet first.
1: <laughs> right. No, that's true. No, that's true. Um, Dr. Saladino, I, am, I, I don't know what to say. It was a real pleasure hearing, um, hearing all that you said. I'm a little sad about my kale, but I'll get over it. <laughs> I'll get over it Um, but I really want to thank you for being on the show and for sharing what you know and really for making it very understandable Um, I, I do hope like I said I hope people listening are gonna start asking questions whether they agree with it or not I just really think that we're you know we're living in a time where instead of just well this person said this so that must be it or I read this that must be it where we really need to start asking some questions and starting with our own awareness this is how i 'm feeling. Why am I feeling this way what 's going on? Um, and I know when I had my own business and I was living in New Zealand, people you know people would come into the office and they would you know first it was always you know an introduction and tell me why you 're here and my first usually ninety nine percent of the time, my first question or my response back was, "What are you eating? What are you eating and i 've always felt that that 's where we start, so I really want to encourage people to listen ask questions, and if you're not getting good answers, ask better questions, you know, um, we have to really be our own advocates, so uh, you shared a lot of very, very powerful information, and um, I can't thank you enough for for being on the show.
2: My pleasure, thanks for having me on, it's always fun, I think it's just, for me, it's just all about seeking truth, you know, we just have to, we're just truth seekers, and I'm willing to be wrong, but we really need to keep asking the questions, it's important that we keep seeking it.
1: Yeah, we got to keep asking the questions, I agree. All right. So there you have it. The carnivore MD, uh, Dr. Paul Saladino. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. And I can't wait to talk to you next time.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Strong by Design podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please subscribe so that more people can find out about our show. Plus, you don't want to miss any future episodes with the amazing guests and topics we have lined up for you.